Just after 10 a.m., December 26 of 2004, actor Jet Li stepped outside the Four Seasons Hotel in Maldives. He was vacationing there with his wife and his two youngest daughters. With his oldest daughter in tow and the younger in the care of the nanny, they were walking out toward the beach right at the hotel pool, which was a bit above the beach. And as he was looking out into the ocean, he saw the water rise rapidly. As he turned, the water struck him at knee level. He says, I took two steps and the water was at my hips, two more steps and it was at my chest. Then it was just under my nose. Mercifully, that is exactly where the water stopped rising. He had his older daughter on his shoulders with his head tipped up to get air and to fight the water, and he had a hand on the nanny, but lost her in the water. But because of his fame and because of his cries for help, there were people looking for him, saw him, and swam to help and rescued all four from the waters. He wrote this in response. That day in the Maldives was a real turning point for me. I had spent the first 41 years of my life thinking about Jet Li first. Wanting to prove I was special. Wanting to prove I was a star. Everything I'd done was self-centered. But as he lay on the floor of the hotel lobby that night, no electricity, water and food running out in a very short time. He lay there that night on the lobby floor with his one-year-old daughter in his arms. And he came to terms with the fact that as he put to put it, God rescued me. He spared me. And the orientation of this actor's life was radically altered from that time forward. It's an illustration of the fact that when God truly gets your attention, one of the first things that you will see is your inadequacy. When God sends a wake-up call, you realize that you must change. And never is this truer than when God gets our attention with a clear vision of who He is. I invite you to the sixth chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah where he records a soul-shaking, near-death experience of seeing God and living to tell about it. Isaiah, after this event, was never the same. And by the grace of God, as we discern what is revealed here to us by the Spirit, we will never be the same either. We do not have this experience actually ourselves, but we have the record of it and can take it to heart, and I trust that we will. In the first few verses of this chapter, Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees God. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. This puts the date of the writing around 740 B.C. King Isaiah ruled over the southern portion of the nation of Israel known as Judah, whom God had chosen as His special people. We have to understand this about the nation of Israel. God chose this nation to work uniquely through it. And God is doing different things through time in the salvation of people. But at this place, He brought Israel to be His unique nation. And there was, in a sense, a father 
son relationship or even a husband-wife relationship. There was a covenant between God and his people that Israel was to honor and obey as the child or as the wife of God. But things weren't going so well right now. This was a rocky relationship. Isaiah chapter 1, if you want to turn back there in verse 2. Isaiah 1 and verse 2, the prophecy starts after that heading, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So what is Isaiah's job as a prophet? It is to bring these two parties together. To look at this holy God and to look at this rebellious people and to say, people, come back to the covenant. God has chosen you as His own. Obey Him. Honor Him. He loves you. This is Isaiah's job. He finds himself writing here after King Isaiah's death. And that doesn't mean a whole lot to us as such. But let me fill in just a bit here. Isaiah was a gifted military strategist, a capable administrator, for 52 years, enjoyed one of the most stable and prosperous reigns in Israeli history. Israel had not been so well off for the last two centuries, going all the way back to King Solomon. So Isaiah's death plunges Judah into a state of political uncertainty. And then there's this menace of Assyria to the north. And there is, as well, the growing pressures at home in Jerusalem. And so it's in this setting. Where is Judah's mind? Where is Isaiah's mind? Really, at this point, they're all concentrated on earthly king and earthly kingdom. It's at this time that Isaiah is ushered into the throne room of the king of the universe. And it's as if the call is here, listen, Isaiah, lay aside your earthly concerns. Worry not about human kings and political intrigue. Stand in the eternal dimension before the king of the universe. Yes, Isaiah's throne is history. A blip on the charts at 52 years. Stand before the throne that will never pass away. And what does Isaiah see here? He sees the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now, somebody here, perhaps you're minded this way, would say, now, wait a minute. This guy sees a vision of the real God. How on earth is that possible? I mean, anybody can write that. He's just a prophet. He's just writing a story. He's trying to make a point, certainly. But did he really see God? Well, Isaiah says that he does see God, and there is reasons why we should listen to him. Let me give you a few evidences. First of all, Isaiah, this prophet, who said that he spoke from God, evidence that he did. Isaiah accurately prophesied that the Assyrian army would capture the nation of northern Israel. And this happened. Well, some could say that. We could see that coming. That wasn't such a great prophecy, but it continues. Then Isaiah accurately foretold that these same Assyrian troops would not capture southern Israel, Judah. That was a little more tough to come by. 
because there was a siege of these Assyrian troops besieging the city of Jerusalem, and one night, mysteriously, 185,000 of these troops died in their sleep. That's a little tough to predict. It goes on. Isaiah prophesied that a king named Cyrus would easily defeat the Babylonians. He would issue a decree allowing the Israelites to return to Palestine. Now let's think about this for a moment, because Isaiah issues this prophecy when Babylon was a second-rate power incapable of overrunning Judah. Okay, maybe he foresees something coming and a development within Babylon, but the Israelites were still in Palestine. They weren't anywhere. And this guy Cyrus... Two more centuries before he's even born. You could name your child Cyrus and raise him up to be a king, but you're not going to be able to fake this one. A man by the name of Cyrus comes in, defeats the Babylonian kingdom with almost no fight, as powerful as it had then become, and the Israelites are in Babylon. This Cyrus issues a decree to send them back. Beyond this, Isaiah prophesies many of the details of Jesus' suffering nearly 700 years before Jesus was crucified. If we really take it fairly and honestly, and we look at the chronology of this book of Isaiah, we look at the writings, we look at these prophecies, you can't avoid the facts that this man had the mind of God. God was speaking to him in a very significant way. And so when Isaiah says that I saw the Lord exalted on a throne, we must give him his time in court and hear his word. We have to give him a hearing, and in so doing, God's Spirit may well stir us to realize that Isaiah's vision is exactly what he says it is, the real thing. It is a powerful vision, and one of the things I think that demonstrates its accuracy is how far off it is from what we would write what we might imagine. This doesn't come across as particularly complimentary to Isaiah, this experience. And it might be something very different than we might write. It is a revelation that indeed that is going to change Isaiah forever. Again in verse 1, he says that he sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That is, his throne is high in the air above Isaiah, giving something of an intimidating setting. And the train of his robe fills the temple, wherever the temple is, if it's the literal temple where he did live, Isaiah, and and may have been in the temple of Jerusalem, or perhaps that earthly temple melts away as it brings Isaiah in vision to the eternal temple, the heavenly temple. We don't know, but whatever the case, standing before God, Isaiah begins to describe what he sees, and what does he say? His robe filled the temple. Whatever the meaning of this word and whatever we make of it, maybe some sort of trailing effulgence of light behind God or beneath God or some sort of robe-type thing, whatever that is, all we know is Isaiah is looking at the floor. He's going to describe his vision of God, and the first thing he sees is the floor, is what's below Man, if you went to a wedding alone 
and your wife was sick and she's really disappointed not to be able to go to this wedding. She came home, you, you came home and she said, how to go? Tell me all about the wedding. I want to hear about it. You said, well, the, the bride's train was really long. I mean, she's going, to be a, she's going to ask for a few more questions, isn't she? Uh, she's going to ask a few more questions. She's going to want to know a little more than that. Is that it? That the end of her dress trailed long down the aisle? I mean, you can't give me any more than this? Isaiah is ushered into the presence of God, and he's talking about the robe of God. He's looking at the floor. God does not reveal himself visually very often, but there is a connection here to previous ages. Exodus 24, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel, saw God on the top of Mount Sinai. You know how they describe that situation? Listen to this. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. End of description. I mean, come on. Moses, Aaron, what, we, we want to know what God looks like. We have a vested interest in this. We, w- tell us, what does he look like? There's blue pavement under his feet. I mean, Isaiah, how about you? Can you tell us, what does God look like? You saw him, you were in his presence. The train of his robe filled the temple. All we can conclude from this is that they're looking at the floor because they can't bring their eyes to see God. In verse 2, above him stood the seraphim, plural form of seraphs, which is a type of angel. They're standing above the Lord. So his eyes move now from what is down below to passing right past a actual looking at the presence of God and now seeing these angels who are hovering above. They have six wings. With two, they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they flew. Creatures are physically designed to thrive in the unique environment for which they're created, aren't they? We, we understand this. A mountain goat, for instance, thick inner fur, with a long outer coat, allows that mountain goat to withstand very cold temperatures. And there's short, powerful legs with sharp, long hoofs that allow the mountain goat to climb rocky surfaces. The goat is created for that environment. You take, on the other hand, a dolphin, a very different creature for a very different environment. Physiological design that fits the environment of the ocean. And if you were going to create a creature to attend to your environment, what would you create? I think we'd probably all create one that had really fast legs and two wings that would fly wherever we wanted them to go to do our bidding, right? That would be our environment is speed, power, get something done for us. Isn't it interesting here when God creates creatures, he is the creator of all things. He creates and designs creatures. He makes these angels to have six wings. Two to fly. He's with us on that one. But two to cover their feet. Why? This is, in that culture, would have been understood a sense of respect and etiquette, a sign of humility. We will not even walk on the same ground as this sovereign. And with two others, they cover their face. 
See, Isaiah can see below the Lord, and he can force his eyes to lift up and look above, but he cannot look into the face of God. And so these creatures designed as angels have wings with which to cover their face, to shield them from the brilliant splendor of this great God. They're made for their environment. The audience as they sing out, is one another. Verse 3, one calls to another and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The Hebrew may indicate, the original text may indicate that they're singing antiphonally to one another. One side responding to the other side, back and forth, as they sing out this song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. This word holy is a Hebrew word translated kadosh. It means to set apart or to consecrate, to separate. God is holy other. It is not the opposite of sinfulness, although God's holiness is certainly that, but it's actually the opposite of a Hebrew word whole, meaning common, profane, or accessible to all. Earthy is the idea. God is above all, He is holy. He is uniquely other. And we find here this, whole, this three-fold superlative. There are many two-fold superlatives in the Scriptures to draw emphasis. We would use an exclamation mark or an underline or bold uh, print. But here, the emphasis is placed by repeating the word. I remember Jesus often said, truly, truly, I say to you, or verily, verily, in some translations. That idea, he's saying, get this, this is really important. There's only one place in the Hebrew Bible where there's a threefold superlative referencing God's character, and it is this. He is holy. Underline it. Holy. Holy. This is who God is. Separate, distinct, apart, absolutely other. And yet, we see at the end of verse 3, in their singing, in their, their song or announcement back to each, to each other, the whole earth is full of His glory. So this one who is separate and is apart might be so distinct or so out of it, in a sense, that He doesn't have any effect on this world. But that's not the case. The entire earth is full of His glory. There is stunning splendor in the world that God has created, but it is a mere reflection of the glory of His greatness and His goodness. God's uniqueness is everywhere evident. The only way it can be missed is if one is spiritually blind. What is the impact of this calling out to one another? Verse 4, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So the reverberation of this holy, holy, holy shakes the temple. I think the reason that the threshold, the floor of the threshold is shaking here, the foundations of the threshold, I'm sure the whole temple's shaking. But this is where Isaiah is standing. He's right there in the doorway, and there's this reverberation that just powerfully shakes the building. And there is the smoke that comes, which in the Old Testament was often a covering of the glory of God. We could not fully see the splendor of God, but often smoke will come to cloud that vision to protect us. And that seems to be what's happening here. It is an awesome scene that will leave Isaiah forever changed. But will he live to tell about it? Will he live to tell about it? Indeed, he does. 
But I think as we just stop in a moment and, and just contemplate what Isaiah has seen, I, words cannot fully describe, obviously, this scene. And we will never see God, I don't believe, exactly the way that Isaiah does here. But this is who God is. God has granted us this revelation. We may say, I'd, I'd, I'd really like to have this vision, and if I had this vision, I would believe God too. God in this book has given us the vision. General Washington crossed the Delaware River one night to take on the Hessians in a surprise attack. And I don't think there's any one of us that's really ever doubted that that took place. There's evidence of it historically. But we don't demand, I have to go to the river and see him do it, do we? We look at the history books and we trust what was said there and the witnesses of others that this indeed took place and it's as good as being there. I don't think he you know, stood out in the boat the way the picture shows him. I'm sure he was huddled down uh, at the bottom to make sure he didn't tip out. But it happened, didn't it? We don't have to see God in a vision just like Isaiah to believe him. God has given us this revelation for us to contemplate, this historical account. And this is who God is. Do we get the picture? I think part of the evidence that we have indeed taken to heart this vision is the response. Isaiah sees God, but the next thing is, is that that has an effect upon him. We see that Isaiah sees himself then in verse 5 because he has seen God. Verse 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now that verse for me, might not work for you this way, but for me, that's evidence that this was a real vision. If you were making up that you saw God, it undoubtedly, just your agenda would be off to fool people. It would show a brokenness in your heart, something wrong. You'd be talking about what a wonderful scene it was and looking for some sort of support that I had been there. I mean, you see this every once in a while, don't you? Have you seen it? I have. The church is announcing somebody died and went to heaven. They've come back. They're going to speak to the, the congregation. That's what Isaiah is messing around with. I have seen the Lord, and I want you to know I'll be speaking at such and such a place to tell you all about the splendor of it. When Isaiah sees God, he sees his own heart, and he doesn't like what he sees. Woe is me. Now, he's a prophet. There's two kinds of prophecies. There, generally speaking, there is the prophecy of blessing. God bless this town. God bless this nation of Israel. God bless us and watch over us. And there is a prophecy of cursing, often introduced by the word woe. So in the first five chapters of this book, Isaiah has delivered words of woe to rebellious Israel. Remember, we read that in chapter 1. Israel doesn't even know who her God is right now. She's in rebellion against Him. And Isaiah has been saying woe to this nation. This nation is subject to the destruction and punishment of God. But here Isaiah sees God and he doesn't say, let me meet you at such and such a place to tell you all about it. He says, woe is me. He becomes strangely self-conscious. 
declaring himself utterly lost. What are the reasons that he gives in verse 5 for his lostness, his sense of lostness? He says, I am a man of unclean lips. In the presence of God's holiness, what is it that Isaiah sees? He sees his sin. And why? The reason is the character of the God before whom he stands. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He realizes he lives in a vile culture whose lips spoke filth as they belched up the depraved gases of their sinful hearts. And Isaiah says, I've been influenced by this nation. He's stricken in conscience before this holy God. Let's take a quick trail off the main path here. This holy God was used in a lot of ways. It just, it, it, it just meant ultimately separate or distinctive. And so it was used of spoons and bowls at the temple and things like this. The, the bells on horses could be called holy uh, because they were dedicated to the service of God. But this idea of holy could also be used in ways that we would kind of wonder about, such as with the activities of shrine prostitutes. In the discussion in several places in the Old Testament, they are said to be holy ones. In worship of their gods, they were moved to have illicit sexual relations because such activity reflected the nature of the gods they worshipped. But when a worshiper of the God of the Bible stands before the God of the universe, that person becomes excruciatingly aware that God's uniqueness, His apartness, His essential separateness is found in the absolute moral purity of His character. And so as Isaiah stands before God, he's not moved by sensual passions. His conscience is stricken, and he becomes painfully aware of his vile nature, which comes out of his mouth. Threatening words and ultimatums that attempt to gain control through fear, and unkind, critical, mean-spirited words, and slanderous speech, and shading the truth in order to protect self or gain an advantage, if not outright lies, and complaining words which do not give thanks to God. This was an excruciating, life-transforming experience for Isaiah because he says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's gone. This King lives forever, and I've seen him. There was a fear expressed several times in the Old Testament that if one saw God, he or she would be killed. I think that's at the heart of what he's saying here. My eyes have seen the Lord. I can't even bring myself to express to you what he looks like. I'll tell you what's below him. I'll tell you what's above him. But I have looked at the presence of God. I stand here ready for destruction. It's all I deserve. As he stands there in his moral nakedness, standing before a holy God, waiting for the wrath of God to consume him on the spot, something happens. We read in verse 6 that God begins to bridge the gap between. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. That is, one of these angels flies to minister to Isaiah. Now you say, well, wait a minute, the seraphim, they're supposed to do God's business. That's exactly what this angel's doing, doing God's business. 
Through one of his seraphs, God reaches out to Isaiah in all of his sinfulness with a coal from the altar. We don't know if this is the altar of, of, of incense that was right before the Holy of Holies, or if this was the altar where animals were sacrificed and killed and burned and consumed to describe or to illustrate the anger and the wrath of God against sin, but the grace of God providing a substitute Perhaps that's the altar from which this coal comes, but it comes through this angel to Isaiah. And verse 7, he touched my mouth with it. Probably figurative, not necessarily, but probably figurative. This coal touches the lips of Isaiah. Remember what Isaiah just said? I'm a man of unclean lips. And this angel comes and cauterizes the lips of of Isaiah with this coal from off the altar of sacrifice. Fire often being a figure of purification in the Old Testament. I believe that's what's happening here. He touches his mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. I mean, multiply it virtually infinitely. This is Isaiah standing there with the water at his mouth, gasping for breath. Before the holiness and the majesty of God, God at this place stops it. And though he deserves a curse, what he receives is forgiveness. Standing there before a holy God condemned, helpless before this throne with head bowed, anticipating that God's holy wrath will consume him on the spot, Isaiah does not move, but God does. God sends a seraph to purge away his unholiness. That's, he's atoned. That is, God's anger is satisfied by this sacrifice. There may be some doubt as to which altar served as the atonement of Isaiah's sin, but there's no doubt as to the ultimate sacrifice for sin to which this altar pointed. Over 700 years after this vision, on a hill outside of Jerusalem, Isaiah's prophecy concerning the servant of God in chapter 3 of this book was fulfilled. And there Isaiah writes, in anticipation of God's servant, Messiah, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Do you see Isaiah there? Just like Isaiah standing before God and saying, Woe is me. He writes, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just as that altar in the worship of Israel would hold a sacrificial lamb, so this lamb is sacrificed, Jesus Christ, in the place of the sinner and the consuming fire of God falls upon him to provide forgiveness of sin. How can you see God? How can you feel the raw edge of terror in his holy presence and not be consumed 
We follow Isaiah's pattern and we look to the future of Jesus Christ. We must first of all realize that God is a holy God. Is that your vision of God? It's very possible to create in your own mind an image of God the way that you want God to be. We need to realize that God is who He is. And He will do the revealing. He is God of holiness, distinctness, absolute moral purity. Secondly, we need to see then in the face of God our own sin. To realize that we are not holy and that God stands poised to unleash the fury of His holy anger against us because of our sin. This is all that God could do. We would look at the worst atrocity take place right before our very eyes. The anger that that would generate does not begin to compare with the consuming anger of a God who is absolutely pure. But then there's this good news. God has moved to bridge the gap between you and Him. He is holy. We are sinful. But God has brought us to Him, not consumed us. He sends His Son, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, to die in the place of sinners, to bear in their place this holy anger of God. That wrath crushed Jesus. But as Jesus rose from the grave, God accepted His work. The anger was satisfied. And for all who trust in faith, there is the receiving of forgiveness. Isaiah repents, and so must we. But we do not repent by seeking to simply become a better person. To come, to, to come face to face with who God is, to see Him for who He is, should dramatically change us. But do not miss it. At this point, we can stand before this holy God and say, I'm going to do better. I've not realized what a great God He is, but I'm going to strive to do better now. It's not a matter of striving to do better. It's a matter of realizing we, we fall infinitely short. As Ephesians 2 puts it, it is by grace that you are saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It is not of works so that no one can boast. How foolish to think of Isaiah standing here and saying, how wonderful I am. I have stood before God. Aren't I great? No, he says, I have stand before God and I see myself in all of my filth. But God in His grace has reached to me. He has brought forgiveness through sacrifice. And I wonder for you, can you look back on your personal history and pinpoint a time on life's journey, a season on life's journey, when you saw God for who He really is? saw yourself for who you really are, and were changed forever. Not just a mere turn of the leaf, turning over the leaf, a reformation, but have you ever come to the place where you've seen God as holy in His splendor? As you do, the sins of others against you and the miseries which you experience in this world will pale in comparison. 
if you see God for who He truly is, you're left standing in that holy light in all of your naked self and all of its moral filth before the searching brightness of God's holiness. You become painfully and acutely aware that it is your sin against this holy God which is your greatest earthly affliction. It is your sin that put Jesus on the cross. And all that you deserve is judgment. But as you stand before this throne of God, as you stand in, the, in this misery before the scorching light of His searing holiness, as you stand before that throne feeling your shame and your utter unworthiness, it's then in trembling fear and cold misery that you reach out in simple faith for the work that God has done in Jesus Christ. And the righteousness of Jesus like a robe around your shoulders, is hung gently to cover you in your sin. It's then, with utmost joy, that tears of grief are converted to tears of joy, and your soul sings with these angels, holy is the Lord, not out of fear, but out of joy. Not out of self-promotion, but out of reverence and thanksgiving. And we sing as with the song of Revelation 5, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Your soul sings to this God because by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, this holy God moves toward you, not as your judge, but as your Savior, as the Redeemer from your sin. This is an experience that you'll never forget. It's an experience that will change your life, but it will not simply change your life for the here and now. It will change it forever in the presence of God who has, to whom you have been reconciled by the death of His Son. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, for some, this is a very familiar passage and one that we rejoice to consider again. For some, perhaps, this is very strange truth. But I ask God that anyone who is separated from you through sin would be reconciled through the death and resurrection of Christ by placing personal faith in what Jesus has done. We ask God that we would see ourselves, and to some degree, if we don't see you, and therefore don't see ourselves, there's no hope. We're lost in our blindness and sin. I pray, God, that you would move in the hearts of anyone here who's separated from you and help them to see that this is not simply words on a page, but that this is the revelation of truth about who you are. And I pray that we'd see ourselves in our sin and understand how short we fall of your glory. But I pray that you would lead anyone who must to respond to embrace the salvation that's in Jesus. I pray, Father, with all of my heart and soul and strength that you would draw such individuals to Christ. And for those of us who know you, Father, may we rejoice in who you are. You are holy, holy, holy. But you are also a God of grace and mercy who forgives sinners. May we rejoice in song and in prayer. Through Christ's name we pray. Amen.